Our subject today deals with five consequences that result from an unforgiving heart. Five consequences of an unforgiving heart and hopefully by uh, seeing how serious each of these consequences are, we would be moved to seek the Lord's strength to put away the sin of bitterness and resentment and to cultivate an ongoing attitude of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, your spirit must be grieved when he sees your people that are at times given to settled unforgiveness, hearts that are bitter, resentful, I just refuse to forgive the offenders. I pray that through your word this morning, your spirit will speak to all of our hearts so that we will look at Jesus, the model of forgiveness, and imitate him as we should since we call ourselves as his followers. Please help us to submit to your truths. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The year was 1944. There was a young Jew by the name of Simon Weisenthal. He was a prisoner in one of the Nazi concentration camps. This camp happened to be just outside his, uh, the city where he grew up. One day he was uh, assigned a duty at a hospital. It was actually a makeshift hospital. It was his high school. Uh, the hospital The hospital was specifically uh, treating wounded uh, German soldiers. Uh, one of the nurses, Red Cross nurses, uh, uh, knowing that he was a Jew, took him to the bedside of a young German officer by the name Karl who was dying. Karl wanted to meet with the Jew before he died. He wanted to seek forgiveness from a Jew because of all the atrocities he had done. It was tormenting him for, for many days and uh, he desperately sought forgiveness from a Jew. So as this uh, nurse took uh, Simon the bedside of this young officer, he started recounting all the things that he did because he too was a, a he was a young man, uh, an officer, but um, he lay dying as he recounted one cruel act after another. Even as he said, uh, one time they were in such a rage because some uh, Russians uh, had planted a bomb and few of his own people died. So irrationally, they took a few Jews and just burnt them alive. And he said those who tried to escape, uh, he himself uh, shot women and children. So as he recounted one after another, Simon just froze. He could not, he could not handle it. So he tried to move away. But Carl grabbed hold of his hand and he begged Wiesenthal with these words, I cannot die without coming clean. This must be my confession. I am left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know you are a Jew and that is enough. I know what I have told you is terrible. 
In the long nights while I've been waiting for death, time and time again I have longed to talk about that to a Jew and beg for forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Simon stood there in silence, wrestling with what he should do. And according to his own words, he said, at last I made up my mind and without a word, I left the room. Carl died unforgiven by a Jew. But that was not the end of the story. Simon survived the war. 20 years later, this was still bothering him. So he planned to write a book called The Mayflower. But as he was preparing to write the book, he sent two questions to the theologians of the day, to the people that are, are the moralists, asking them answers to the two questions. The two questions were these. Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? Question number one. Number two, what would you have done? He received 32 responses. Vast majority said, you did the right thing. Some said only the victims could forgive. The Jewish responses were unanimous. You did not have any obligation or any right to forgive them because according to the Jewish thought, there was no reparation. So you couldn't forgive him. Few Christians said you should. That was very few. See, a book like The Sunflower takes the issue of forgiveness out of the realm of the idealistic and sentimental thinking, brings it to reality. Issues related to forgiveness are hardly theoretical, are they? Let's suppose you and I received those two questions. What would our response be? Was Simon's silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This man was pleading. Keep that in mind. And what would you and I have done if we were in his shoes? Not easy to answer, especially for those of you sitting here today who may have endured great evil at the hands of others and find yourselves in such a position. But whether you feel a deep need to forgive those who have offended you or struggling with forgiveness or feel justified in your settled response of not granting forgiveness, you feel I'm right in my stand. I want us to see what the scriptures say, what the Christian, the professing Christian ought to do with the subject of forgiveness. Because ultimately the right answers to Simon's questions does not depend on the majority, does not depend on how you feel and how I feel. It ultimately depends on what God says. And God says whatever he has to say to us in one book, in this book that we call as the Holy Bible. And as I did a quick survey of the scriptures, I could see that the Lord describing at least five negative consequences, five negative consequences that come as a result of being an unforgiving Christian. He 
using the word unforgiving Christian. Those two words shouldn't go hand in hand. But we struggle with that. If you're honest, we, we do struggle with that. Five negative consequences. But before we look at those consequences, I want to set the foundation by giving two reasons. Two reasons why Christians are to model a forgiving spirit. Why? Number one, number one reason Christians are to model a forgiving spirit is because God commands us. Because God commands us. That makes it authoritative, doesn't it? God has spoken that all the earth keeps silent. While there are many scriptures that call us to forgive, I want us to look at just one. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Ephesians 4 verse 32. If you're using the church Bibles here, it's page 1668. It's a very critical uh, verse. As you will see uh, when we go through this. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Here's a straightforward command. I read uh, the parallel one at the beginning of the service, Colossians 3.13. But look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in God, just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's a command. It's a command. How am I to be kind and compassionate? It shows by displaying a forgiving attitude. So that's reason number one. God commands. Reason number two, why are Christians to display a forgiving spirit? Because it is one of the marks of genuine conversion. It's one of the marks of genuine saving faith. And in 2 Timothy 3, you don't need to turn to it, in verse 3, when Paul describes the unbelievers, one of the characteristics that marks unbelievers having an unforgiving spirit. Forgiveness is a mark of genuine conversion. Look closely with Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Please notice those two words, just as. I want to draw your attention to that because it's very important. Just as. That phrase, just as, has two ideas behind it. Two ideas. Number one, it has the idea of comparison. Our forgiveness should be like that of God. Just as comparison, God forgave us in Christ, same way, we who are in Christ should forgive others. It's what is called as a competitive force. But there's a second thing. There's also a cause and effect relationship here. Our forgiving others should be the result of a cause. What's the cause? We've been forgiven. Look again at the text closely. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Imitate that kind of forgiveness. That's the comparative thing. But also because You've been forgiven. You now must forgive. So if we are people marked by bitterness and resentment, isn't it legitimate to ask if we truly have been forgiven ourselves? Because forgiven people should be forgiving people. 
So if we are unforgiving people, are we people who have actually tasted forgiveness? You see, at the root of unforgiveness is a lack of genuine love toward the person or persons we refuse to forgive. And the Bible repeatedly says that love for others, even our enemies, is the mark of all who are truly followers of Jesus. Let me read a few verses. Let that settle in the back of your mind. You don't need to turn to it. Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5 verses 44 and 45. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 35. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Very important passage. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone, no exception. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves others has been one who's been loved who has tasted the love of God, specifically through Jesus Christ. Whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. First John 4.20 Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. So you can see clearly from these passages where there is unforgiveness, there is a lack of love. And when there is a lack of love, there is a lack of genuine salvation. So two compelling reasons that call all who claim to be followers of Jesus, all who say they have the Holy Spirit inside of them to display a forgiving spirit. God commands us to forgive. Second, forgiveness is the mark of genuine conversion. But it's easier said than done, isn't it, this whole business of forgiving others. If you're honest with ourselves, this is one of the hardest commands for us to practice, especially on a continual basis. So we can use all the help we can get in order to protect ourselves from developing an unforgiving heart or even overcome it if that's an issue for some of you here today. That's why I want to look at five consequences of an unforgiving heart. By looking at the dangers these consequences are to our spiritual life, my hope and prayer is that we will be moved to cry out, to plead to the Lord to help us imitate him in this area also. Because without Jesus Christ helping us, we cannot be forgiving people. But in order to receive his help, we should continually cry out to him. But in order to cry out to him, we need to understand how serious this whole subject is. And that is why I want us to pay close attention to the five deadly consequences of an unforgiving heart. Here's consequence number one. If we have an unforgiving heart, God rejects our worship. God rejects our worship. We are created to worship God. Revelation 4.11 talks about this. You are worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. God created us to be worshipers. But God makes it clear when we come to offer worship, it must come from a heart that is forgiving heart. 
If it is an unforgiving heart, he will not accept that kind of a worship. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Flip back a few books to your left. Page 1378. Page 1378. Notice what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. I want to pick it up from verse 21 on to set kind of a little bit of a uh, continuity here. In verse 21, this is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said to the people of all long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is warning against having an angry spirit. But notice how he makes the connection with anger and and a bitter spirit. What's the first word in verse 23? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Notice again the connection there. Anger leads to having an unforgiving spirit. And you come with that kind of an attitude to worship. Keep in mind, Jesus is speaking these words in Galilee. People have to go to Jerusalem to offer the worship. That's not next door. So what Jesus is telling them is this. If you're coming all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem to worship, there, right there, you realize things are not right between me and someone. Leave your gift there. It's important that worship is important. But go. First, take care of that business, then come. Implication, if you don't do that, your worship is not acceptable. Jesus lays the responsibility on us. You go. He doesn't state if they are wrong or if you are wrong. He says, you take the initiative. Go, you go. In other words, don't wait for the other person to come. But often in our pride, we don't want to do that, do we? They should come to me first. But Jesus strikes a blow to such thinking. He strikes a blow to our pride and to our ego. We are thin-skinned and hard-hearted before we come to Christ. But when we come to Christ, God wants us to be soft-hearted and thick-skinned. But we go back to the old ways. Jesus says, no, no, my children, my followers, it's not like that. And if we fail to have that kind of an attitude, we can come to church all day long, sing with all our hearts, listen to sermons, even be in ministry and go through all the motions. But you know what? The Lord says, I reject that worship. You cast my words beside your back. You've stiffened your heart, stiffened your neck, put a finger into your ears and say, I will not obey. And you can worship all that you want. I reject it. God says, you do your part when it comes to mending relationships. Leave the result in my hands, but you do your part. Through the faithful prophet of old, Samuel, this is what 
God said. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Striking words. Coming to worship with a settled, unforgiving heart is the same as practicing witchcraft and worshiping idols. That's what God's telling us. Yet, how many professing Christians come to worship the Lord week after week, month after month, year after year, and even decade after decade with unsettled forgiveness in their hearts at times toward a person sitting in the same room with them. This is what the Lord says of such people. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Useless worship. Useless. Like he told the people in Malachi's day. Oh, that someone would shut the temple doors. And stop these people from offering to me useless sacrifices. Because their hearts are not You've come to worship God this morning. That's good. That's great. But are there people in your life that you are unwilling to forgive? You've justified, you've rationalized, you've done everything to say you are in the right. But if you want your worship to be acceptable, then you must ask God to give you the strength to go to them and do what you need to do. You do your part. If they reject your efforts, then there's not much you can do. This is what the Apostle Paul tells in Romans 12. I would like for you to turn to this. Because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. In Romans 12, page 1615. Sorry, 1616. In verse 17, Paul says this in the context of relationships. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So what is he saying here? You do your part. Whatever you can do from your end, do it. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is saying is this, you do your part. If the other person does not want to live in peace, there's not much you can do. But even if they don't, respond in the right way. The alternate for you is not doing evil. Because notice that text, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He remains, he chooses, he or she chooses to remain your enemy. You still don't take vengeance in your hands. You still don't give in to bitterness. You do what your heavenly father commands you to do. You see, the alternative to forgiveness is not bitterness. We think we have only two choices. Either forgiveness or revenge. But that's not how the Bible works. You have a spirit of wanting to forgive, but you cannot pronounce forgiveness unless there's true repentance. 
Because God himself does not forgive people unless it's repentance. If not, everyone's going to heaven. Everyone is not going to heaven. We are to forgive just as in Christ God forgave us. How does he forgive us in Christ? Through repentance and faith. What Christians are called to display is always having a forgiving spirit. Even if there is no reconciliation, I'm going to do my part. If you're not willing to respond, my alternative is not to take revenge on you. I will still do whatever I can do within the bounds of scripture to show love and care for you because he, the father, still causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust and he causes his rain to pour on the just and the unjust. That's how we imitate. Obviously, reconciliation cannot happen if there is no repentance. So when we're talking about you take the necessary effort, you're saying from my end, I'm pursuing peace with all people. Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one can see the Lord. Blessed are those who are peacemakers for they and they alone are the sons and daughters of God. So we do our part and then come to worship. But if we fail to do our part, then God rejects our worship. That's consequence number one of an unforgiving heart. Number two kind of goes close to the previous one. God rejects our prayers. God rejects our worship, but God also rejects our prayer. This is closely linked to the first one. You see, prayers are an integral part of the Christian life. It's a means through which we express our dependence on God for all our provisions. But God clearly says, if there is settled sin in our hearts, and in this case, today's context, the settled sin of unforgiveness, he will not hear us. Turn with me, go back to Matthew chapter 6 this time. In Matthew chapter 6, in that prayer that the Lord taught us, the model prayer, he teaches us to pray, page 1380. Look at verse 12. One of the key petitions that we are to voice out is this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's a key word, the word what? As. Forgive us as we have also forgiven. It means what Jesus is saying is this, forgiving others is supposed to be the normal practice of all who claim to be my followers. That's a presupposition. When I go to, go to God and ask for forgiveness, I'm going with the attitude, God, I am a forgiving person. There are no healthy options other than forgiving others. See, the, the main enemy of an unforgiving heart, of a forgiving heart, is pride. When we fail to forgive others, when our hearts are filled with bitterness, we must realize it's because of our pride. We've somehow deceived ourselves into thinking that I deserve forgiveness for my sins, God, but others don't, especially those who've sinned against me, the mighty me. Think about it. Why, why else would be so reluctant to forgive others? Because we have so short memories concerning our own sin. Our pride has erased the ugliness of our sins. It has blinded our hearts to see our ugly past and even our ugly present. 
It has blotted out the memory of grace and forgiveness that God through Christ has freely given to us and continues to give to us. A proud heart goes to the throne of grace but refuses to give grace to others. And even if we give forgiveness, we feel that's because you've earned it or I'm going to make you work for gaining my forgiveness. I want you to know how much you hurt me. I want you to suffer and then I will grant forgiveness. I'll make you pay. Is that how the Lord forgives us? But on the other hand, if we have a long memory of our own sins and a short memory of the sins of others, it becomes easier to forgive them. Why? Because we realize our sins against a holy God is far, far more serious and far more offensive than the sins someone has committed against us who are sinners to begin with. When we realize the magnitude of our own treason, of our own rebellion, of our own offenses against a God who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all, we will see the sins of others as a minuscule compared to ours. And just as we have the joy of experiencing forgiveness on a daily basis, with equal joy, we will grant the same forgiveness to others freely I have received, freely I will give. It becomes second nature. And to undergird the importance of this issue of forgiving others, notice Jesus what he says in verses 14 through 15. He continues after the prayer. This is the only thing. He expands a little bit more. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, ties back to verse 12, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. This He's talking about the ongoing cleansing that we need. The practical sanctification, if you will. You are praying for your sins to be forgiven as my child, as my follower. That's good and biblical. But if you want experience, if you want to experience prayer, answers to your prayers, in context, this prayer for being forgiven so that we can renew our fellowship which sin has broken, then remember this warning Jesus says. If you're coming to me, asking me to cleanse you, but you are unwilling to forgive others, then our intimacy is broken. I will not hear that prayer. You cannot come to me with a settled heart of bitterness and seek the very same thing that you've received in abundance but you're unwilling to give even a trickle of it to someone because you think you the mighty you have been offended so much Jesus places a sobering if not a frightening condition upon our own forgiveness. And by the way, this is not just New Testament teaching. Even in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, we are told these familiar words in Psalm 66, verse 18. The Psalmist says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Cherished sin. Not that if I had sin, there's a, there's a difference between 
struggling with it and holding on to it. Settled attitude. I just will not forgive for what you have done to me. That kind of a settled attitude. God says, the Lord would not, Psalmist says, Lord would not have listened. But the prayers of the psalmist was heard. Why? Because he didn't hold on to any sin with that attitude. Verses 19 and 20, he says, But surely God has listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to the God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Because I had not cherished sin. There are times when we cherish punishing others by refusing to grant forgiveness to them. We leave them in the cold, in the dark, and in the cruel silence. Suffer, we say. Let me repeat. God rejects flat out the prayers that come from a heart that refuses to turn from sin. Through Solomon, God says this. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. Proverbs chapter 28, verse Nine, their prayers are detestable. If you turn a deaf ear to this particular instruction of practicing a forgiving heart, then prayers are detestable. Have you ever wondered why perhaps some of your prayers have not been heard for many years? Maybe it is the Lord's will to not grant a yes to those petitions. If that is the case, accept it. Don't resist, don't refuse. A good hand of God knows what is best for you. And he says no. You want God's will to be done? It's a no. That is also God's will. Maybe that is the case, but if that's not the case. And what the real issue is because you are a very bitter and unforgiving person on the inside. Have you examined your heart? Or even better, have you sincerely cried out to the Holy Spirit to search your heart and reveal to you even those hidden sins if it includes the settled sin of bitterness. Again, let me repeat, God will not hear the prayers of a heart that is settled in refusing to forgive others. Through the, prof through the prophet Isaiah, we read this. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins, which would include the sin of bitterness, have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Put away the sin of bitterness, sin of an unforgiving attitude, and then pray with confidence, knowing he will hear and respond according to his goodwill and pleasure. We cannot go to the throne of grace asking for mercy if we withhold granting that mercy to others. Here's a word for Christian husbands. First Peter 3, 7. Write it in your heart, husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Nothing will hinder your prayers. Sin of unforgiveness will hinder your prayers. But, but you don't know my wife. I don't need to know your wife. It's irrelevant. It applies even to wives to obviously the principle extends. But you get the idea. It's not dependent on the other person. 
you you jesus always puts the responsibility on the individuals you go you don't cherish sin in your heart you have a spirit that is free from bitterness so let's pay attention to the second deadly consequence of an unforgiving heart god will not only reject our worship but will also reject our prayers the third negative consequence of an unforgiving heart we hurt others we hurt others and what i mean when i mean others it's not just the person that we are refusing to forgive but others who see us having this kind of an unforgiving and a bitter spirit especially other fellow believers they grieve when they see us professing to be christians but living a life that is so contrary to what jesus calls us to live that there is a there is a familiar parable that jesus taught that's often called as the parable of the unforgiving servant or unforgiving slave it's in matthew 18 i still keep coming back to matthew even though i finished matthew don't i matthew chapter 28 because this is the only uh, gospel that records this parable look at matthew 28 parable is in verses 23 through 35 the context of the parable is peter is asking a question in verse 21 to the lord lord how many times shall i forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times he thinks he's being magnanimous jesus replied i tell you not seven times but 77 times and seeking to emphasize the importance of forgiveness meaning that this is not about keeping a record The point is about forgiven people ought to be forgiving people limitless Jesus teaches this parable it's it's a pretty straightforward parable i'm not going to go through all of it the the story is about a slave who owed a lot of money to his master tons of money he could never ever repay In those days that's the case you'll have to be sold into slavery you your family everyone so he goes and begs his master forgive us he pleads with him and the master instantaneously forgives him the picture of god forgiving our sin debt and the guy gets forgiven and he goes right away he's got a fellow slave to whom he borrowed lended some money he lent some money wasn't much pittance in compared to what he was forgiven he goes and he chokes him demands him you better pay that money and that guy begs him please please give me some time the same way he begged but he refuses Verse thirty says, instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Shocking and grieving, isn't it? Notice as a result of this man's cruel act, what those close to him did. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. This is the picture of fellow believers when they see another believer living in constant anger, resentment, bitterness. They go to God because the person is not willing to listen to you anymore. So you go to God. You 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 you're filled with grief and also outrage. How could someone who've tasted so much forgiveness from you, God, do this? You you're not looking down on them. You're just you're emotional. You'll be that way if you truly love your fellow neighbor. Because we truly don't love our fellow neighbors, we don't grieve when they walk in sin. and we love 
our fellow neighbor as we ought to, then we will grieve over their sins. So they go to the master. The deep grief, they pray to the Lord to set this fellow believer free from the destructive poison of an unforgiving heart. See, we're called to love and build our neighbors. We're called to be a blessing to others, not a burden, not a source of grief. But if we walk in sin, any sin for that matter, but again, in today's message, in the context of it, the sin of bitterness, unforgiveness, we bring grief to others. And that is a great sin. Plus, we are a stumbling block to others also. What example are we setting to new believers? What example are we setting to our own family members, our children? Instead of building them, or a means for them to stumble. So you see how the sin of bitterness gives birth to so many sins. Make no mistake, our sins hurt others, particularly sins, sins like anger, bitterness, slander, which all come from an unforgiving heart, a heart that is given to so much pride and ego. But don't forget, not only does it bring grief to fellow believers, first and foremost, it grieves the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that command comes right in the context of getting rid of bitterness, anger, the words that we speak that are hurtful. Put away all those things because they grieve the Holy Spirit. They grieve the Holy Spirit. So three consequences of an unforgiving heart. God rejects our worship, rejects our prayers, and we hurt others, but that's not all. Two more to go. Here's the fourth one. We will experience God's severe disciplining. We'll experience God's severe disciplining. God takes sin seriously, especially sin in the lives of his his followers, his children. He will do what it takes to bring them back from their straying ways. And that process is called disciplining. And that happens when professing believers are given into a pattern of unforgiveness. Let's continue with the parable in Matthew 18. So the people, their grief and anger, go to the master. This is a picture of believers praying to the Lord. What happens in verse 32? Then the master called the servant in in response to their pleas, in response to our prayers. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Just as I had on you. Forgive as the Lord in Christ forgave you. Read that in that passage. Just as I had on you. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus made the application. Verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. No exceptions. Will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister what are those last three words? From your heart. Not just outside. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. From your heart. What is Jesus implying here? God will severely discipline those who claim to be his children, but if they display a pattern of unforgiveness, bitterness, and their attitude toward others. And the disciplining process sometimes can be very severe. Where you see a bitter and unforgiving person, you will see one 
who lacks true joy on the inside. They're often restless in spirit. They're always loaded with guilt. No true and abiding peace in their hearts. Even secular counselors attribute unresolved anger and ongoing bitterness as one of the main reasons behind many a counselee's problems. Unresolved anger, bitterness. And at times, God's disciplining could even take the form of physical affliction. Obviously, not all sickness is a result of sin, but some of it could be. Remember the Corinthian church, which was divided. Pride, bitterness, anger, resentment. No love for one another, even when they come to the Lord's Supper. God disciplined them. In verse 30, Paul says, That is why many of you are weak, sick, and some are asleep. God even took the life of his people. Again, let me clarify. I am not saying all sickness is a result of sin. John 9, Jesus clarifies that this man's blindness is for the glory of God. But there are some that could be. That's why we need to ask the Holy Spirit, you help me. Am I being disciplined for this? If so, let me put it away. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, that God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. A holy God grants mercy. Not if the object deserves. Same way. We are his children. We ought to be holy people. And part of that holy walk is granting mercy to people. The question is not if they deserve it. The question is, what am I called to do? What have I received? That is the cause that results in me pursuing a forgiving spirit. Fifth and final consequence of an unforgiving heart. We make ourselves slaves to sin. We make ourselves, we go back into bondage, into sinful patterns. Jesus himself said in John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And later in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Christians are people who say, the Son has set me free. If he set us free from the power of sin, not just the penalty, but the power is being broken, why should we go back and put ourselves in bondage to sin especially the sin of bitterness and anger and resentment. Romans 6.18, Paul tells us, you have been set free from sin, the ideas from the power of sin, and have become slaves to righteousness. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you're slaves to righteousness, right living, the kind of living that pleases God, and the kind of living that pleases God is for his people, to be forgiving people. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, which means we have the power to be free from being in bondage to bitterness and resentment. We've been given a new life. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And that life involves an ongoing demonstration of forgiveness. Why keep playing the sins of bitterness over and over in our minds. Why? Why go back? Hurt ourselves, hurt others, and most importantly, grieve the Holy Spirit. See, forgiveness is a choice. 
a daily choice that we must make. We may think we are in power when we don't release someone from their wrong, but it's not us who is in power, but it's a sin that has power over us. Sin controls us. Forgiveness is really setting a prisoner free and realizing we are that prisoner. We are that prisoner. Sin enslaves. Christ sets us free. We need to sincerely keep seeking his help. Set me free from this bondage of bitterness. If you kept a record of our sins, who could survive, said the psalmist in Psalm 130. But with you, there is forgiveness. And people should look at us and say, with you, there is forgiveness. So five deadly consequences of an unforgiving heart. God rejects our worship. God rejects our prayer. We hurt others. We bring about God's disciplining. And number five, we make ourselves willfully slaves to sin. Coming back to the question that Simon posed, did he do the right thing? Did he do the right thing? His heart might have Liam convinced him he did the right thing. We don't know. But majority of the responses said, yes, you did the right thing. But the Bible clearly declares he did not. The problem with Simon is he had not tasted God's love through Christ. That is why it was not easy for him to deal with that situation. But we have a story of one who was in his shoes at that same time period. Let's see what her response was. You are familiar with this person, aren't you, by now? Corrie ten Boom, a believer who was in those Nazi camps because she gave refuge to the Jews, suffered much. According to her own words, this is what she said. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a wizard cap with its skull and crossbones. Past comes back to her. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man because they had to do this when you take the showers. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Her sister was in prison. Betsy was in prison with her as well. For those of you who are familiar with the story, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, he said. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. 
I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Same thing. Carl asked Simon, will you forgive me? Cody goes on to say, and I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do, do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your heavenly Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I love her honesty here. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one who stretched out to me. And as it did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And then this gelling warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now let me say, not every time would that warm feeling come. But even if the warm feeling does not come, we shouldn't go back and say, I was a fool to extend forgiveness because that's what we tend to do because things remain the same. Again, it does not matter. Forgiveness is an act of the will. We forgive because we have been and continue to be forgiven of far great offenses against the Holy God. Yes, His divine power has given us all that we need to live a godly life. We don't need anything more if we are children of God. We have all that it takes. We just need to appropriate that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. We are the children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. We are called to imitate our loving and forgiving Heavenly Father who gave His Son to die on the cross for our sins. We are those being made in the image of the One, Jesus, who while hanging on that cross kept crying out, Father, forgive them. We are those indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers us to pray the same even for our enemies. Father, forgive them. Let's prove that we are forgiven people by being forgiving people. Father, I pray that you will help us do that. And if there are some here who are far away from you, they have not tasted your forgiveness by your spirit, would you please take him to, to the cross right this very moment and see your son giving his all even for that individual so that 
they would see how much you love them and how much you welcome them with all their sins. You are eager to pronounce forgiveness and make them your children. Please move in their hearts to come to you. And for those of us, same thing, Lord. Take us back to the cross again and again, again and again. Remind us again and again how much you, Lord Jesus, have done and continue to do for us and help us to extend that same thing to others. Give us strength. We cannot do it with our own strength. Even now, help us to resolve in our hearts. If there are people in our lives today when the service is done, help us, Lord, to call to you with a fervent heart. How do you want us to approach the situation? Give us wisdom and empower us to do that which you call us to do without an ounce of justifying our own sins. Forgive us, for we all have sinned in this area of bitterness and resentment and slander. Please help us to be more like you. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.